Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to providing innovative treatment options for people living with cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about ocular oncology with Dr. Ronell Lim. Dr. Lim is an assistant professor of ophthalmology and visual science at Yale School of Medicine and director of the ocular oncology program at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Dr. Chagpar is an associate professor of surgery at Yale and the assistant director for global oncology at Yale Comprehensive Cancer Center. So, Dr. Lim, maybe we should start by you telling us a little bit about yourself and what exactly you do. Yes, well, I am dual fellowship trained in ocular oncology and oculoplastic surgery. I'm very passionate about both fields, okay? Uh, There's a lot of overlap between plastic surgery and ocular oncology, and I'll tell you a little bit about what they are. So, ocular oncology involves cancers in and around the eye, And so our patients come in and we do a full ophthalmologic examination. We look at the surface of the eye. We uh, dilate and take a look at the retina. And we really advocate that patients have uh, yearly dilated exams because uh, cancers in the eye can be completely asymptomatic. Mm -hmm. And when they do occur, they need to be treated relatively quickly because sometimes cancers in the eye can spread to other parts of the body. Uh, and the mm-hmm. other part of, of what you do that you said is uh, very much related? Yes. So oculoplastic surgery, where we do uh, we treat uh, conditions which involve the eyelid and orbit. Mm-hmm. And so uh, oftentimes you can have neoplasms or cancers that involve the eyelid uh, or orbit. Uh, I also do uh, functional Uh, eyelid surgery where patients need their uh, eyelids lifted and these uh, procedures can help patients to see better. Mm -hmm. And so let's talk a little bit more. Let's do a deeper dive into Mm -hmm. um, kind of the cancers that occur in the eye. So the first thing you said is that many of these are are asymptomatic. Mm -hmm. Um, And so people need dilated exams. Is that everybody and starting at what age? Okay. So uh, we certainly recommend, you know, dilated exams. So uh, cancers in the eye can happen uh, in children. They can happen in adults, okay? Uh, so let's talk about cancers, uh, childhood intraocular cancers. So the most common primary intraocular childhood cancer is retinoblastoma. And parents can, can look for... Um, strabismus or ocular misalignment or what we call a lazy eye, Mm -hmm. and that can be a warning sign. Also, uh, a white pupillary reflex. Uh, Lots of people are taking pictures all the time, and if you look at the picture and you notice an asymmetry in the pupil where one pupil is white and the other one is dark or you can see a red reflex, that's sort of a warning sign, and the uh, parents should bring the children in right away. And as we know, children don't really complain. They, they won't say, uh, you know, I don't see well. Mm-hmm. And so these are subtle changes that parents really should be aware of. 
And if something like that is is noticed by the parents, uh, definitely a dilated exam is warranted. And so, but if you have a child, mm-hmm. uh, sticking with the theme of children and, and eye cancers in children, if you have a child who does not have a lazy eye or who does not have a white pupil when you take a picture with them, um, then do they need dilated exams every year periodically just for screening, or are they good? So most schools will do uh, vision testing, and that serves as a screening for uh, just developmental issues with the eyes. And a lot of times, you know, children may fail a school screening and then be will be referred to an ophthalmologist, at which point they certainly will have a dilated exam. And you know, childhood intraocular cancers are not very common, uh, but that is one way that we we can detect them in asymptomatic uh, children, you know, that have absolutely no other signs. So let's talk a little bit more about what happens uh, after that. So a child presents with one of any number of symptoms or is picked up by a screening test at their school. They come in, they get a dilated exam, that's really just where the ophthalmologist dilates the pupil and takes a look in the back of the eye. That's exactly right. And so at that point, what are you, exactly are you looking for in these children when you look in their eye? Um, and how is the diagnosis of retinoblastoma or any other cancer made? Through ophthalmoscopy. So that is the physician actually looking into the eye, and we have a direct view of any type of retinal cancer in the eye. Okay, we can assess retinal detachments and any other other kinds of, of growths. Mm-hmm. Now, there are other ocular uh, neoplasms or cancers that can occur uh, even on the surface of uh, children's eyes involving the conjunctiva. Some of them are benign growths and others are uh, you know, less likely to be a malignant growth on the conjunctiva and the same in adults. So cancers can occur on the surface of the eye, and when they do occur on the surface of the eye, we're moving on to adults now, they're more likely to be, um, you know, we can have benign neoplasms like nevi or pigmented growths or other more malignant neoplasms like squamous cell carcinoma, which can involve the cornea and conjunctiva. And even adults, some adults have a tumor inside inside their eye and can be completely asymptomatic and don't even realize it, which is, again, uh, the reason that we stress having dilated exams. So at the time of the dilated exam, you look in the back of a child's eye and you see something. And what you see is suggestive of the most common tumor, let's say, which is uh, retinoblastoma in children. Now, On the show, you know, we talk a lot about different kinds of cancers, and one thing that always comes up is the need for a pathologic diagnosis. So oftentimes this is a biopsy, somebody putting a needle into a tumor and actually rendering a diagnosis that says this is XYZ cancer. Does the same occur in ophthalmology in tumors in the back of the eye? Yes. For certain tumors, we are able to biopsy them. Okay, for retinoblastoma, for instance, usually um, the cancer has certain features. It's usually not pigmented. It's white. It's a retinal lesion. It has 
sometimes calcium in it. We do other sorts of ancillary testing that can help us pinpoint the diagnosis. So not only do we look inside the eye and visualize the tumor and note the characteristics that are consistent with retinoblastoma, but we also do ultrasound, okay, where we apply a, a ultrasound probe to the eye and we're able to uh, assess the acoustic features and, uh, and can detect calcification in that way. We can do an OCT where we can actually detect and uh, identify which layers of the retina are involved, especially important for smaller tumors. What's an OCT? It's uh, optical coherence tomography where uh, it's a non-invasive test and it gives us information of all of the retinal layers. And some tumors uh, involve just the nerve fiber layer or the inner retina. Others can involve the entire retina, like retinoblastoma. So an OCT sounds like it's a CT scan for the eye. That's exactly right. Okay. And so you you look in the back of the eye, you do an ultrasound, you do a fancy OCT, Mm -hmm. uh, CT scan, and you see something that looks like it's a retinoblastoma. Does that cinch the diagnosis of a retinoblastoma? Or do these kids really need a needle in their eye to make the diagnosis? Right. Um, So we tend not to directly biopsy retinoblastomas only because it can predispose children to seeding of the tumor elsewhere. Mm. And we do not want that. There are newer modalities like taking a sample of the anterior chamber fluid. We call that the aqueous humor. And this has not been used very frequently, but in some centers, uh, this can be a marker. It's something that's very, very new in ophthalmology. But for other tumors, other lesions of the retina or the choroid, which is um, deep to the retina, Mm -hmm. we can biopsy these lesions. For instance, uveal melanoma is the most primary intraocular tumor, and we biopsy uveal melanomas all the time, really, to cinch the diagnosis. Uh, Other things like metastasis. We can have metastatic lesions from like lung cancer, breast cancer, and they they appear in the eye. And we see that all the time. And when they appear in the eye, do they also appear without symptoms or do people actually have symptoms right. when they get a mm-hmm. metastasis? It really depends on the location. Mm. Okay. So there are vital structures uh, that if affected, patients will notice right away that Uh, something is going on, my vision is blurry, or straight lines don't appear straight. To me, they appear curvy, because a lot of these lesions can present with subretinal fluid, which causes some visual distortion. And so sometimes they're asymptomatic, but sometimes they they are, uh, you know, you can present symptoms of blurry vision, visual distortion, even pain. Like Some metastatic lesions can produce pain, particularly lung cancer. It's, a, it's known to be very painful in the eye. And so getting back to retinoblastoma, just to mm-hmm. finish that story. Sure. Um, now, I understand that there are certain genetic predispositions to retinoblastoma in these children. Is that right? That's exactly right. Uh, sometimes retinoblastoma can occur without a family history and without a genetic predisposition. We call that a sporadic 
uh, case. But other times, it can be hereditary uh, when patients have a germline mutation. And so if a patient has uh, retinoblastoma, we routinely send them for genetic testing. Of course, we, w- we want to uh, obtain a thorough family history mm-hmm. to know if it's something that's hereditary or, uh, or uh, is this the first case in the family. And is retinoblastoma gene mutations something that's screened at birth? And for those children that carry that mutation, are those children automatically getting dilated exams on a regular basis? How does that all work? So it's not routinely screened at birth unless there is a strong family history, okay? Uh, Now, if there is a strong family history of retinoblastoma and, let's say, a parent has a germline mutation, uh, there, we do screen children very early, and there are we look very carefully, uh, even with prenatal ultrasounds, to see if uh, retinoblastoma exists in utero, and mm-hmm. that has been detected in the past. And what's the average age at which children get retinoblastoma if they're going to get it? It varies. It really depends. And um, again, sometimes patients present in utero. We see patients uh, uh, via ultrasound. You can see you can localize the tumor, uh, and some sometimes patients are just a few months old. Okay, well, I I really want to dive deeper into how we treat retinoblastomas and so many other ocular tumors. Um, think about not only children but adults, because everybody who has eyes is potentially at risk for developing. Uh, eye tumors. So we're going to learn a lot more about ocular oncology with my guest, Dr. Rennell Lim, right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a leader in oncology research with four new FDA-approved medicines in the last three years. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about lung cancer. More than 85% of lung cancer diagnoses are related to smoking, and quitting even after decades of use can significantly reduce your risk of developing lung cancer. For lung cancer patients, clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments. Advances are being made by utilizing targeted therapies and immunotherapies. The BATTLE-2 trial aims to learn if a drug or combination of drugs based on personal biomarkers can help to control non-small cell lung cancer. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Rennell Lim. We're talking about the diagnosis and treatment of ocular cancers, and right before the break, We were saying that the most common cancer that occurs in the eye in children is retinoblastoma. This is something that for some children is genetically mediated. Um, For other children may be sporadic, um, but is often diagnosed simply by seeing an ophthalmologist who can look in the back of the eye, do some scans with an ultrasound, a CT, and actually make the diagnosis of retinoblastoma, which brings me, Dr. Lim, to the question of, well, what happens then? Um, So you look in the back of a child's eye, you see something concerning for retinoblastoma, you do all of your fancy tests, which all confirm your suspicion. What happens then? What's the treatment like? 
Well, the treatment uh, varies, and it really depends on like the size of the tumor. Uh, is it bilateral? Um, so let's say we have a bilateral case, and uh, the treatment paradigms can differ across institutions. Uh, there is a strong um, there's a strong push to treat patients with bilateral retinoblastoma with. Uh, intravenous chemotherapy, mm. okay? And that is one form of treatment used in conjunction with other forms, okay? Another form of chemotherapy is intra-arterial chemotherapy, where uh, the femoral artery is canalized, and a small dose of chemotherapy is introduced via the ophthalmic artery. And that has shown... Uh, very, very promising results in achieving tumor regression for retinoblastoma. Other forms of treatment are like freezing treatment. We call that cryotherapy or a laser, uh, laser treatments. And so it sounds like, you know, when we talk about treatments for most cancers on this show, I always think of it as three big buckets. Mm -hmm. There's chemotherapy, there's radiation, and there's surgery. So are you saying that most of these are treated with chemotherapy, plus or minus some local therapy, whether it's cryo or something like that? How much of a role does surgery play, and how much of a role does radiation play in these ocular tumors? Great questions. So for the most part, chemotherapy is our first line. Now, if a patient shows signs of recurrence, uh, you can use plaque brachytherapy to treat uh, select cases. Um, and when we talk about surgery for retinoblastoma, we're essentially talking about enucleation or eye removal mm. after patients have failed other forms of treatment or if the tumor is very large at the time of presentation and unlikely to respond to chemotherapy or other local forms of therapy or in a case that has failed, you know, all of all of the treatments. Mm. And you mentioned, I mean, clearly enucleation is not a good idea, particularly if somebody has a bilateral case. Um, how often is it that patients present with bilateral retinoblastoma? So, we always say in, in the treatment of retinoblastoma, our number one goal is to save life, okay? To, and next, to save the eye. So we try everything to try to save the eye. And then to save vision, lastly, okay? Um, and the likelihood of enucleation really depends on the time at which the patient presents to us. So if the patient is presenting very late, um, after the tumor had, has had a chance to, to grow significantly, then enucleation is, is likely. So, and the breakdown for unilateral versus bilateral retinoblastoma, what does that look like? Are most retinoblastomas unilateral or are most retinoblastomas bilateral? Most are unilateral. Well, that's good to know. Mm -hmm. So we, we've spent a lot of time talking about the most common eye cancer that occurs in children, retinoblastoma. Let's talk a little bit about adults. What kind of cancers of the eye do adults get? Right. So uh, the most common primary intraocular tumor in adults is uveal melanoma. 
So tell us about uveal melanoma, what it is, how it presents, how we treat it, and what the prognosis is. So uveal melanoma can affect the choroid, the ciliary body, or the iris. Okay, It can be asymptomatic, or patients can present with blurry vision, eye pain, uh, or just having some sort of distortion. And so they present to, let's say, their general ophthalmologist. And a mass is noted. Sometimes it can be pigmented, like most melanomas are, and sometimes it can be amelanotic. And if there is uncertainty about the diagnosis, uh, a fine needle aspiration biopsy can be performed, where we actually take a sample of the tumor and send it to the lab and get confirmation that this is this is a melanoma. Other times when uh, the characteristics are undoubtedly melanoma, we go ahead and treat. And the treatment for uveal melanoma is plaque brachytherapy, where we, where we apply um, a disc-like uh, structure to the scleral surface, right onto the eye, mm. to treat uh, the cancer. And so when we talk about melanoma, I mean, most of us are a little bit familiar with skin melanoma and some of the risk factors associated with that, right? Being out in the sun, not wearing sunscreen, going to tanning salons, et cetera. Right. Are the same risk factors the case in ocular melanoma? No, actually. Unfortunately, uh, not much is known about the risk factors, but we do know that patients with lighter skin, lighter eyes, tend to be more affected with uveal melanoma. So we always tell patients it's not really um, like what you did, not visiting a, a tanning salon, not staying out in the sun, that really predisposes you to getting a uveal melanoma. It's a genetic, it's a mutation that occurs. Sometimes it arises de novo, that means out of the blue, or it can arise from a benign appearing lesion like a nevus. Mm. You know, we always see on, on the sunglasses that when we go out that there's so much UV protection. Does that in any way reduce our risk of uveal melanoma? And should we be looking for a certain number or a certain grade on those sunglasses? Or does it really matter? Just buy whatever's cute. You can buy whatever is cute <laughs> because it's not likely um, going to prevent getting uh, uveal melanoma. It's really not. It has not been scientifically proven to be a, uh, a direct result of the amount of UV exposure. Well, that's good to know. Mm-hmm. Um, now, so you talked about uveal melanoma, which is really melanoma that occurs kind of in the back of the eye, right? It can occur in the uvea. So three structures comprise the uvea. The iris, which we can see the colored part of the eye, uh, the ciliary body, and then further back, the choroid. Okay. And then you had mentioned early, early on something called conjunctival melanoma. That's right. Tell us about that and why that's different or whether it's exactly the same as uveal melanoma just in a different part of the eye. It's completely different. It behaves completely different. It actually behaves more like skin melanoma. Hmm. And, it, and it presents as a pigmented or a non-pigmented nodule on the surface of the eye. The conjunctiva is a thin membrane overlying the white part of the eye, the sclera. Okay. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you can have a melanoma uh, occurring on the surface of the eye. And when that happens, that tends to be more of a surgical 
uh, that requires more of a surgical approach. And so we excise the tumor by using the no-touch technique. We try not to manipulate or touch the tumor. We only man- manipulate tissues surrounding the tumor to prevent seeding of these uh, pigmented cells across uh, the ocular surface. So what you're telling me is that for these conjunctival melanomas, you're taking them out, essentially taking out part of the eye, that That's little right. bit of conjunctiva, but you're not actually removing the whole eye like we talked about in retinoblastoma in some cases. That's right. So we're only removing the involved portions and, and a safe margin to make sure that we have it all. Interestingly, there are newer... Um, There are other modalities of treatment, like targeted therapies. And so this is really an exciting field, Uh, targeted therapy and immunotherapies. These are a form of chemotherapies that that have been shown to be uh, uh, very useful for cutaneous melanoma, for skin cancers, right? People are living longer with skin cancers and... uh, now we're starting to use them more for conjunctival melanoma. So these are are therapies that you give intravenously? How does that work exactly? And does it only work for conjunctival melanomas, or do these also work for the uveal melanomas that we talked about before? And so we work very, we're lucky here at um, Yale to have uh, this magnificent uh, medical oncologist. So this is really in conjunction with medical oncology. And um, they tend to work more for conjunctival melanoma. Only about 10% of uveal melanomas will respond to immunotherapy. And so, again, conjunctival melanoma is more similar to cutaneous melanoma. Unfortunately, uveal melanoma does not really respond to these treatments. Mm. Well, if conjunctival melanomas are more like skin cancers, do those sunglasses make a difference now? Uh, it's, we advise, uh, UV protection, but it's, there it, it no really data? has not been shown to decrease, uh, your risk of getting, uh, eye cancer by, by wearing sunglasses. Note to self. Mm-hmm. Now, the other thing that we, you had touched on just a little bit right at the top of the show was that you're, you've got kind of two hats you deal with cancers that occur in the eye Mm -hmm. and around the eye, but there's also cancers that kind of occur in the orbit and in the eyelid and things like that. Those cancers may get short shrift. So tell us a little bit about what are the most common cancers there and how they're treated. Right. So we can talk about the the eyelid. Uh, The most common cancers are actually UV related. And so we we advise uh, UV protection whether it be sunglasses or sunscreen or wearing wide brim hats uh, to do reduce the hats really work yes you <laughs> they <Okay>. do <laughs> to checking. reduce the um, to reduce the amount of exposure to ultraviolet light and, and so if a patient does have a basal cell carcinoma uh, that also is uh, surgical uh, that's managed surgically. So eyelid cancers, by and large, tend to be kind of like skin cancers, basal cell they, cancers, they are squamous skin cancers, cell yes. cancers. Mm-hmm. Tell us about cancers that occur in the orbit. 
Yeah. It's, so patients um, can present with uh, what we call proptosis or a bulging eye because mm. of a mass that occurs in the orbit. And the orbit is really the space around the eyeball. And so if you can imagine uh, having a, a tight space in, uh, surrounded by bone, and then you have the eye in that socket, and now a mass is growing, pushing on the eye. It can cause blurry vision, pain, proptosis. Uh, these are just some of the, the manifestations. Sometimes uh, patients present with double vision because they are not really able to move their eye fully, mm. and, and the mass can grow so large that it's actually pushing pushing on the muscles that surround so, the eye. So these cancers that occur in the orbit, you don't really get to see them with a, a direct visualization when you look into somebody's eye with an ophthalmoscope. No, no. For these tumors, uh, we need CTs or MRIs to help us characterize the lesions. Dr. Ronell Lim is an assistant professor of ophthalmology and visual science at Yale School of Medicine and director of the ocular oncology program at Smilo Cancer Hospital. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.